G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and this is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices, and sometimes a place to look into the mirror. So today we ask about universities, their role and their future as the patterns of public funding change. And it's a great honour to welcome to this conversation the renowned philosopher and author, Master of the New College of Humanities, Professor A.C. Grayling. Anthony Grayling, welcome to The Policy Shop. Ah, very delighted to be here. Anthony Grayling, what is the role of the philosopher in public policy? Well, there are two things, really. One is that philosophical styles of thought, that is, preparedness really to examine a problem and push it through to limits, to try to see uh, what all the little byways of implication and entailment are, is very important, I think. To think things through, that, after all, is what uh, what philosophy is all about. We remember the wonderful joke told about the two old ladies on the Glasgow bus, one overheard saying to the other, my dear, you must be philosophical about this, don't give it another thought. Well, but that's exactly what shouldn't be the case in public policy discussion. And the second thing is that the philosophical tradition from classical antiquity to the present is rich in perspectives and ideas that I think would be of very great value indeed to our social discourse and to our political process if people were more alert to them. And it used to be the case, of course, that they were. Think back to the 19th century. All our great prime ministers in, in England anyway were classically educated, so they knew what Plato and Aristotle and others had to say, and it made a difference to them. It would be a very good thing if we could keep that up. You've been a, an intellectual with considerable impact. You've voiced your thoughts and around a whole range of issues in the, in the public domain, but you've chosen to do something activist to start a, an institution. Is there a role for a public philosopher or does it require direct action as you've taken in order to, to change the public discussion? But of course, most uh, um, of, of the people who are prepared to stick their heads up above the parapet and pontificate on uh, on uh, public matters do so from uh, a position of relative security in academia, if if they are academics, uh, and don't feel the need to go on to, to to set up new institutions. Which, after all, I mean, you know, when I began um, with the new College of the Humanities, uh, I had two invincible things on my side: enthusiasm and ignorance. Well, the ignorance has uh, evaporated, I can tell you, when it comes to all the minutiae of doing of doing practical things. Uh, but happily, because I've got a really wonderful team of people who um, who, who are with me on this, so that's that's. That's great. But the enthusiasm is unabated because I think education in in the end is our salvation. I I think that uh, if we could only educate, really educate properly and well, if only we could encourage and help our our colleagues, uh, the the students who who are our colleagues and who teach us too, um, to to be fully, fully signed up for this process, uh, we might help little by little to make the world a better place. Well, earlier this decade, you not only despaired about the state of public universities, you decided to do something about it. In 2011, you established the new College of the Humanities in London, a private fee-paying institution steeped in the humanities, offering intensive education in an intimate setting with some of the world's most famous academics. So as a philosopher and an academic, what was it about contemporary universities that drove you to this step? 
Well, I should mention first that uh, I spent uh, the first half of my career. You're going to see that my career has three halves. So okay. it's a really good maths here. <laughs> the first half was uh, at Oxford. I taught at Oxford. Then at uh, London, at Birkbeck College in London, where I was professor. And at both places, I tried to encourage my colleagues to think a little bit about, you know, being innovative and thinking about the undergraduate program particularly um, in, an, in a way not very different from what's happened here in Melbourne on the Melbourne model. Yeah. Uh, and I found that the although we have some extremely fine universities in the UK and they stand high in the rankings mainly because of research, there's always been a question mark over commitment to teaching and exactly what uh, most undergraduates who don't go on to do graduate work get out of the experience. And I very much wanted to try to marry two models. One is the, the sort of Oxford tutorial, one-to-one essay-based uh, model, which if you think about it is uh, the gold standard, especially for the humanities, yes. because what's happening is your student is uh, doing a bit of research, organizing their thinking, writing an essay, uh, coming and meeting you and, and discussing it with you forensically and doing this every single week, week after week, month after month, term after term, all the way through three years of undergraduate study. And that is a very, very rigorous intellectual training. And I wanted to marry that to something like, not, not exactly like, but something like the U.S. liberal arts model where there is some yeah. breadth. Uh, so it seemed to me that if you're going to marry the two together, you just have to ask undergraduates to work a lot harder, to do more. So you get a kind of T-shaped education. You get the, the depth in the stem and you get the breadth in the crossbar. Uh, and the, uh, the way that we organized it was by having a core curriculum that they all had to do. No matter what your speciality is, you might be a philosopher, an historian, a, a literary critic. But with all your other fellow undergraduates, you do logic and critical thinking. Uh, you do applied ethics. You think about the ethical problems in society. Society. And you do science literacy. This is very important to me. I, I think an educated person should have an intelligent understanding of what's happening in the major areas of science. And finally, they all have to do what we call the professional program or the launch program. And this is just it's sort of business studies light in a way. They, they have to uh, understand about money. They've got to know how to read a balance sheet. They've got to know how to negotiate. They've got to do some practical projects. And, and my motivation for this is I say to them, look, most of you want to get rich. This is going to help you. Some of you want to bring down the capitalist system. That's fine. This is going to help you too because you've got to know the enemy from within. So everybody gains, <laughs> but it gives them a sense of the realities out there because um, part of the realities anyway are that uh, money tends to make a difference. So you better understand it. So you've been quoted as saying, in England, we over-specialise too fast and too early. There seems an absurdity in making people make their specialising decisions at the age of 16. So this is a deliberate move against direct entry into professional education. Well, a, a great philosophical answer here, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I do think it's tremendously important that undergraduates should have something uh, that, that they can specialise in and get a yeah. really deep understanding of because or it almost doesn't matter what it is, but the experience of, of going deeper on, on a subject, I think, is what provides the uh, student with a lot of the intellectual equipment that you could apply across the board to other things. Yeah. But it, also, it's much more satisfying to do that. I mean, my, I suppose if there's a, an objection I have to the liberal arts model, it's that it can be a bit pick and mix. And then all you get is superficiality, which is not a good thing. And let's talk about those students for a minute. You've just graduated the cohort, I understand, so you've got some sense yeah. of what they're out there doing. I'm yeah. interested to hear that. And then who is choosing to come to the college? Right. So we're just graduating our second cohort at the hey. moment, in fact, and we're very, very well delighted indeed uh, with the results. Um, I mean, one, one 
extremely good thing which uh, has happened, a sort of silver lining to the uh, process we've had to go through to get ourselves set up and validated is that for our first uh, three or four years, we were offering University of London degrees. At the beginning of last academic year, we began to introduce our, our own. And this is a, an artifact of the validating process there. So our um, first, second and third cohorts will all have been examined by the University of London, not by us. This is a completely objective mm -hmm. uh, assessment of how we're doing. And we have done extremely well. Last year, for example, 88% uh, of our graduates were first class or upper second class uh, graduates as against the national average of 72. 30% of them first as against the national average of 20 and so on. And this is a completely objective, uh, objective assessment and a function of two things. First, the teaching model, which is very intensive, as you, as you pointed out. But second, the question you've just asked about the students in question. We're very selective. This is a very this is a, an institution where you have to work very hard. So we like to interview all plausible looking candidates face to face. We like to read work they've done. We talk to their schools. We don't fetishize grades because in some cases, especially with the A level system, less so with the international baccalaureate system, they're not a, a universally reliable indicator of, of merit or, or of potential. Uh, it can sometimes be the case that a student is too smart for the system and gets marked down as a result of it. And we catch those uh, students sometimes. So we do set a high bar, but we want to talk to the individuals themselves. And of course, they tend to be a bit self-selecting because they look at the, you know, the prospectuses of different universities. Uh, we say to them, you've got to work harder here than, than anywhere else. So if they're coming along, it's because they're interested. So a significant investments are required. Uh, UK students at the college without a scholarship pay a fee of around twelve thousand pounds for each of uh, each of three years plus exam fees, which has certainly attracted some criticism when the college was opened. So, what are the employment outcomes? What are the concerns of the students coming through? They are choosing a humanities degree. They are indeed, and we think there is a powerful case to be made for the value of the humanities. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's an immense migration. It may even be a refugee flight to the STEM subjects. Everybody thinking that if they can add and subtract and know something about IT, that they're going to get a job, and so indeed they will. And I would not, for one minute, wish to downplay the great importance of uh, of the sciences and technology. Engineering, mathematics, uh, I think very, very important indeed. But I think it's also important that we should recognize two things. First, that social entrepreneurship, leadership positions in society and politics, civil service, law, journalism, creative industries, publishing and the like, need people with a humanities background. But education is not only for your job. I mean, it's marvelous if you have a job that you love. I suppose you and I leap from our beds and, and, and hasten swift as thirsty cats to our work, as the Chinese poet once said. But uh, an education should also be for life. I mean, I point out to people that Aristotle said, we educate ourselves so that we can make a noble use of our leisure. You have to remember that we are, in addition to being people who have paid employ. Uh, you know, we're voters, neighbors, travelers, friends, lovers, spouses, parents. We need to educate the whole person and not just as if the one great point was getting a job. So we always say that knowledge like that has intrinsic value and that it's valuable way beyond its, uh, its sort of market. And yet, how do we justify all of us, not just the new college, charging fees and expensive fees for students to, to acquire this knowledge, which should be available? Well, the thing is that uh, education, especially a high-quality education, is not cheap. 
it, no. it costs money. You have to, you know, you've got to pay your staff, and if you've got very good staff, you've got to compete for them. You've got to provide uh, good facilities for your students, good good environment for them to do their learning, and and all this does cost money. If you if you accept that fact, and if you accept the second fact that almost everywhere in the world, the burden for paying for higher education is shifting incrementally from the taxpayer to the individual beneficiary of the education. This is just a reality that we have to, to have to face up to. And there is a case for being sensible about this and saying, look, this is a serious investment. And we know, and all the data is there to be looked at, that uh, people who have uh, university degrees have a better chance of earning more over a lifetime than people who don't. That's just a, yeah. a straightforward fact. So um, th there is a compensation. It could be viewed as a, a, as a kind of investment. But it should actually be viewed also as an investment in not just in one's pay packet, as I said earlier, but in oneself. I mean, the whole point of going on to uh, post-secondary education is to have an, an opportunity to do the thing which is that step beyond the acquisition of knowledge. I mean, I always point out to people, you can get data on the internet. Data is not knowledge until you organize it. When you've organized it, you know stuff. But then knowing how to use it, knowing how to value it, knowing which bits of it are really important, knowing which bits of it demand of you that you find out more, that's a matter of having insight, understanding, and appreciation of what you know. And that is something which tertiary education, uh, above all, invites people to do, to be reflective, uh, to be really good assessors of, uh, of what they're being told, of what claims are being made, of what the world is like. I agree, and there's no doubt that shift from public to private and the expectation of individuals is happening around the world. I still worry, though, that leaders of institutions, you and I and, and our colleagues, will be seen in retrospect to have let down the next generation because we've given up the fight for affordable public education. Well, I've always uh, um, said, and I've been on the record, that uh, um, you know, in the utopian situation that a society recognizes that one of its greatest investments is in young people and in their future and in the future of the society, that uh, uh, um, public funding of education is a desideratum. Now, I would be prepared to fight and die on the barricades for really excellent and uh, taxpayer-funded primary and secondary education. It would, in the ideal, be terrific if we could keep on publicly funding fully and properly, not yeah. in a cheapskate way, uh, tertiary education as well. Um, the facts stare us in the face. It's now becoming unrealistic to think that that's ever going to come back or, or, or be done properly. And so we have to say to people, look, here is something of tremendous intrinsic value, this business of a, of a higher education, of becoming something well-rounded and thoughtful and insightful. Um, you know, if, if you care about that and if you're interested in it, um, I'm afraid, you know, you've got to stump up. What changed in our society? It's, it's true in Australia as in Britain. What, what changed that it no longer seemed a responsible use of public money to fund students to go through a university degree? Well, governments in Western polities, uh, of course, have um, lots of hard choices to make um, about where they spend their money. Uh, in the world that we live in at the moment, they seem to think, um, I'm not fully myself persuaded that this is the case, that they should spend huge sums of money, for example, on defence, mm -hmm. um, but they do. 
Uh, and it's on the other side of the equation, the difficulty that all politicians face in the short-term electoral cycle, that they have to try to keep down the burden that they place on the individual taxpayer. Now, I've heard the following argument put, and uh, it's not an argument that comes from my side of the political spectrum, which is a little bit uh, pink around the gills, you know, <laughs> but from, from, the, from the blue around the gills political spectrum, you hear the following thing said. Students, university students say university education should be free, meaning that the university student himself or herself is not going to pay a penny for it. Somebody has to pay for it. Who is it? The taxpayer. Uh, who are the taxpayers? Well, the chap who drives your local bus and the, you know, the person who sweeps up in the hospital and, the, and everybody else. So why are they paying for you to get an advantage in life? Why are they paying so that you can earn more than them eventually? Now, that kind of argument is, is actually quite hard to rebut. Uh, you know, the, the, the thought is that uh, society uh, is, is paying to advantage certain of its members. And you do get the point put that this has been one of the most brilliant scams that the middle classes have run on, uh, yeah. on society while there was still a, a sufficiently small proportion of school leavers going on to university. Now, that's changed. The whole funding model has changed. Things are becoming very expensive and difficult. The, the, the burden, therefore, is indeed shifting. And so I would say, look, um, the, 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 the people on the right of this argument uh, are, are not interested in, in paying for your university education. But a university education is still an extremely valuable thing, especially if you're fully signed up for it and you take full advantage of it. Uh, and therefore, it is something worthwhile for you to do. I'm interested, though, how you as master of the college will balance the interests of the college and its students with the necessary interests of those who've invested in the college. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a very good point. And it was something that was, it was quite clear to us at the very outset that this, the relationship that we have with ourselves, because of course we're the same people. We are three bodies. We're the college, we're a, a little private company, and we are a trust raising money for the endowment that we use to give scholarships and, uh, and uh, exhibitions to our students. So the, the little private company which sits alongside us doesn't do anything other than provide the college with its services, accountancy, legals, human resources, building maintenance and the like. And since we are the same people, we're actually paying ourselves, so to speak. The college itself is a not-for-profit and, the, and so the arrangement that we have with, our, with ourselves, qua little private company, is that if that little private company ever has a, a surplus, 60% um, of it will come back into the college for educational purposes, and the remainder will be distributed among the people who have backed the college. Now, the people who have backed the college financially, and we are talking you know, well in the region of 20 million odd pounds in these first few years, um, are all of them signed up to the fact this is a very long-term project. Uh, it is a kind of legacy, semi-anthropic, you know, uh, um, kind of philanthropic uh, enterprise on their part. Um, almost all the money sits around the, the little board that discusses uh, how we're looking after our finances and so on. So it's it's very much a kind of family and friends affair. Uh, and and it's, it involves a great deal of very serious commitment. And I think and hope, I really do believe, actually, that uh, we've managed to hit a, a sort of a, a sweet spot here, which is that if you are going to, to try to fund education outside the, the, the um, purview of the public purse, what you really don't want is to be 
financed by a, a genuinely commercial profit-seeking company, which is going to start cutting corners and asking you to drop your standards and, and yep. pack in more students and so on. Uh, and, and to get that uh, right, you, you really have to feel that the people who are backing you are backing you because they believe in the project. It's hard to do. You see, you've got to get the right the right people. But if you can, uh, then as I say, that's the sweet spot. So you're seeking quite a different model from the standard American approach, which is to use endowment and uh, philanthropic support to make this work? Oh, no, on the contrary. I, I, w- I want to raise an endowment. But of course, it takes a huge amount of time to yep. do so. You need alumni for one thing. <laughs> and right. So you've got to graduate lots of cohorts and you've got to get them into great jobs, which uh, in the case of our first and second, we've succeeded in doing. Uh, and you've got to persuade other people that what you're doing is really worthwhile and valuable. And so we've got to raise money. This is why we have uh, the trust alongside the college. Um, I mean, I've managed to pass something like about 10 million through that trust it's to impressive. help us with our because quite a lot of our students don't pay anything at all yes, and, 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 yep, yeah. and some of them pay very small fees and we do this on, on merit and I'm waiting for the day with, with bated breath and with great excitement when I can have a needs blind admissions policy this is when we will have enough in the trust to be able to do it uh, but uh, that, that is really going to take time but you're, you've absolutely hit the button there the, uh, the future is the endowment model yeah. but you've got to build an endowment now, look, Harvard has got a $35 billion endowment. When I've got $35 billion, everybody can come for free forever. You're listening to the Policy Shop podcast with me, Glenn Davis, and the renowned philosopher and author, Master of the New College of Humanities, Professor A.C. Grayling. So let's talk a bit about the academics who work in the school and a very eminent group they are. Much criticism of contemporary universities comes from, and it's about academics, the sense of marginalisation and decision-making, an insecure employment for many, inadequate support and systems, a sense that institutions aren't what they were. What's the role of academics in the new College of the Humanities? Well, uh, our academics fall into, uh, as it were, three groups. Uh, the central group is the, the full-time academic uh, faculty, um, the senior members of which were all hand-picked very early on because uh, I was given some excellent advice by a friend uh, with whom I'd been at Oxford as a, as a youngster uh, who went on into business and was very successful. And I said to him one day, you must be very good at this stuff, at this business business. And he said, no, I don't know anything about it. I just know one thing, which is if you've got an idea, find the right people to help you carry it out. So I was very, very careful at the outset, both from the point of view of registry staff, administrative staff, but also faculty, to go out and, and pick some people who really who really felt signed up for this this kind Kind of project. So I've got marvellous uh, uh, colleagues. So the full-time um, uh, faculty, they deliver the curriculum, they're central to everything, and the academic board is the, the beating heart of the, of the college. Um, we do have uh, sessional staff, um, so people who come in on part-time contracts and so on. I think this is pretty standard, and in some cases necessary, because if you're a small institution as we are, and you want a specialist to come in for a particular course. In law, for example, if you've got somebody, uh, you know, you have a, a module in IP or in tort, you really need to get somebody in who, who knows it. So we have sessional staff also. And then, of course, I have this very distinguished visiting faculty. Yeah. Uh, and uh, your, your own very dear Peter Singer Singer's, is one yes, of my uh, visitors also. They all come. Uh, they all come and give a, a set of lectures uh, every year. Uh, in some cases, uh, six, six lectures over a few weeks. They're around the college Students can meet them and talk to them uh, and socialize with them. Uh, occasionally, they pop in and do just a couple. But the idea behind it is that the uh, academic community worldwide should, I think, be more fluid and 
uh, and uh, collegial, that it's a great opportunity for uh, universities everywhere to you know, cozy up with and, and have friendships with universities elsewhere. Um, and the staff should be fluidly exchangeable between them. So it, it's a great opportunity for the students. A very important point I must mention is that I'm keen that my faculty should be research active faculty. Not that I want them to be uh, competing in league tables and so on. I say to them, if it takes you 20 years to write the great book, that's fine by me, but be doing it because I think a, a research uh, a active member of faculty is a better teacher and a more interesting colleague. So that was one of the early critiques of the college, that it wasn't going to have a research focus despite having some very famous researchers on its books. But you're saying that research is now part of the mission. No, it always was. I mean, there was a great deal of misunderstanding about the uh, about the nature of the college uh, and about its uh, in, intentions. Um, you, in your introduction, very kind introduction, uh, described it as a private university. Uh, I describe it as an independent one because, of course, all universities are private in the sense that they're self-governing uh, and they look after their own money. Um, most universities in the UK, of course, get uh, public uh, subventions, but they are autonomous bodies. So the independence in question is independence from the sorts of constraints that uh, come with large sums of public money subvention. But that the point of that is that uh, it helps us to be able to innovate more and to be more adventurous in the kinds of things that we do. I'd like to turn to debate on campus and questions of academic freedom because uh, you've eloquently written about these in, in other areas. This month, uh, the Dean of Students at the University of Chicago sent a letter to new students telling them that uncomfortable conversations and confronting opinions are the price of academic freedom. University of Chicago, he said, will not issue trigger warnings, not counsel invited speakers because they might be controversial, not create intellectual safe spaces where, to quote the dean, individuals can retreat from ideas and perspectives at odds with their own. This has been both applauded and much criticised in the United States. You've been quoted criticising the willingness of some American universities to protect their students from unwelcome ideas, saying, and to be precise, and I quote, an inflated political correctness will make a mockery of the ideal of higher education. And you're here in Australia partly to speak at a festival of dangerous ideas. How should we balance these questions on campus? I'm just about to say this is a tricky one. Uh, I mean, actually, I'll take that back because I think we should be bold about this. Um, the, the, the spirit of what is said in that Chicago letter, I fully agree with. Yeah. I do recognize some of the criticism of it, which is that it slightly missed the point uh, about trigger warnings and safe spaces. And somebody wrote and said, look, uh, it's not that uh, we're, we're offering people an opportunity to run out of the lecture hall. We're offering them an opportunity to brace themselves for something that might actually remind them of a traumatic experience they'd had. Uh, and the safe space idea was not that there would be a room with soft toys in it where you could hasten if if somebody had said something that really did upset you. But and, instead, and it, where, turned out, and it turned out the dean had been a sponsor of such space. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I take that point. But I think that point ought to be um, dealt with in a slightly different way, which is that common courtesy and respect for our fellows in society, whoever they are and wherever from, uh, uh, demands of us that we are sensitive to those sorts of considerations. To turn it, to formalize it and to penalize uh, lapses in it, um, other than by meeting what you might call bad free speech with better free speech, which is my antidote. Mm -hmm. I like to say in my institution, this is a safe space for free speech. You're going to hear things here that are, are very challenging, the things that might uh, disagree with very deeply held convictions that you might have. I mean, for example, somebody might come in from a, 
uh, a very uh, committed faith background, let's say, and they're going to meet people who are scathing about that sort of attitude. And they've got to be robust enough to deal with that. But the problem actually, you know, uh, I think then lies slightly elsewhere, which is that, and we're all been at fault in this if we are parents, I think, which is that um, it seems to me as if the m more recent generations of undergraduates have had insufficient resilience. I think that that is a key word at the moment. Ask about how intellectually and personally and psychologically resilient people are in facing the, the bracing winds of, of reality and difference and of other people disagreeing with them. But the great focus on identity that marks these American debates, less so in Britain and even less so in Australia, is to argue in a sense that the philosophical focus should be on the treatment of the individual rather than on the ideas as sort of abstract and separated from that. How do we give some weight to student concerns, even if we don't accept those concerns? Well, I mean, I think we should accept uh, concerns about uh, discrimination or feeling very uncomfortable or isolated uh, ethnically or, or in one's religious commitment and so on. Um, so the, 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 there is, I think, uh, you know, a good case to be made for, for sensitivity. But on the other hand, um, when people come to university, they should in advance understand that they're signing up for uh, something where, um, you know, it's a, it's a dodgem car uh, arena where they're going to get buffeted a bit by what other people think and disagreements with them and they should be prepared for it. So there should be one big trigger warning and that is a university is a place where people discuss ideas. So, you know, suck it up. That's, that's what's that's going right. to happen there. And, and it's going to do them a lot of good if they're prepared to get, get involved. And how do you take this philosophical commitment to academic freedom into not just the classrooms but the operations of the new college? Well, that's uh, uh, um, uh, an interesting one too. Um, I mean, I've heard you say, in fact, <laughs> uh, how very, very important it is that the government of a, of a university institution should be something collegial. It comes out of the academic board and the, and the interchange of ideas. And, and uh, um, if you can encourage a, a real sense of shared commitment to a set of central ideals, and you can test against that set of ideals the practical things that you're trying to do or changes you're making or things you're trying to introduce, then, then I think you can, you, you can keep the wheels rolling and, and the whole vehicle moving in the right direction. It's difficult sometimes, but uh, I, I find those difficulties interesting, actually. So looking beyond the new college of the humanities, what changes are you looking for in higher education in the UK more broadly? What would make it a better system? I, I think actually some of those changes are indeed happening. Uh, various institutions around the country have started to modify their undergraduate programs. Um, I mean, uh, rather as you've done here actually, is to think differently about what an undergraduate education should be like. So this, this thinking has started. It's a recent phenomenon because for something like half a century, there was a, a very, very small-c conservative attitude to what an undergraduate education should be. I mean, I sometimes put the point by saying, when I went up as an undergraduate, 8% of school leavers went to university, and the dons were cloning themselves. And that's why you know, pretty well all the modules that were taught, we used to call them courses or papers in the palmy old days, uh, were their interests, and they were very scholarly. Yeah. And, and the whole undergraduate program was focused on producing more academics, not people who would go out and leaven the social loaf in some way. And so that the, the realization that uh, it might be that academic study must have a component in it, which is outward facing as well as inward facing, is an idea which has began rather slowly to trickle in. But now I think we're, we're seeing a bit more of a cascade. Great words to finish on. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to my guest, the Master of New College for the Humanities, Professor A.C. Grayling, 
on this episode. Anthony, thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me here. And Professor Grayling was a guest of the Melbourne Writers' Festival, where he spoke about his most recent book, The Age of Genius. How Literature Influences Public Policy will be the subject of our next podcast. Look forward to talking to you then on The Policy Show. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi and Heather Jarvis, with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour and research by Ellie MacDonald. You can find this podcast and read more on this topic at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au. And remember to subscribe to The Policy Shop on iTunes. Copyright University of Melbourne 2016.